John Wooten was the coach of UCLA. He became the coach in 1949 and coached until he retired in 1975. During those 20-some years, 27 years, he won 10 national championships, seven of them in a row. And after he retired, three coaches filled his place. They coached only for about two years each, never winning a national championship. When a legend moves off the scene, it's awful hard to fill his place. It takes a lot of energy because we're always comparing, right? We're always looking and saying, man, you know, they don't say it the same way. They don't look the same. They don't act the same way. They don't have the same personality. And we as a church today begin a new chapter. A new chapter because our pastor, our friend, our confidant has followed the advice of his doctors and prayerfully the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the Lord and retired. And many of you ask, as I ask, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to go? How are we going to get to the next block? And what is the next block? What is the next accomplishment? He was our rock, our security, our encourager. You knew that when you came on Sunday morning, you knew he'd be here. No matter what, even if he had to sit in a chair and preach, he was going to be here. He'd be down in the kitchen and he'd work. He would be there at the hospital. He would be there when the babies were born. He would be there dedicating them. He was a leader. But you know, I look at God's word and he leads me over to Acts, the first chapter, verse 3 through 14. And he says, you know, we've been down this road before. The disciples had spent three years with Jesus, walking, talking, looking. And they were wondering what in the world was going to happen because for 40 days after the resurrection, he met with them, he ate with them, he allowed them to touch him, he allowed them to hear the message that he had for them. But they didn't know what to do. There in Acts, the first chapter, verse 3 through 14, he says, And while being in their company and eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And down to verse 14, And all these, with their minds in full agreement, devoted themselves steadfastly to prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The disciples stood there, in the Mount of Olives, listening to Jesus without any idea what was about to take place. And all of a sudden, he ascends into the heavens, their leader, their master, their Lord, the one they had seen placed in the grave, the one they had seen afterwards and heard and listened. He was leaving them. And what in the world were they going to do? Who was going to help them in the days to come and to follow? Shall we pray? Father, we pray now that as we open your word, that you'll lead us to that which you have for us. Encourage us as a church that this day will be a day that transforms us into that kingdom people that will follow after you in all that we say and do. We thank you for our pastor. We thank you for his leadership. 
And for, Lord, we seek now your direction. For we ask it in your precious name. Amen. Transition is a hard thing, is it not? It is a difficult time. And when you read this passage of Scripture, what does Jesus tell his disciples? He says, what I want you to do is something really hard. I want you to go and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come, the comforter that I promised you, and he will come and he will give you power, and he will give you that which you need to become the people that I have for you to be. Transition is difficult. And as we were looking at that, those disciples were asking the question because Jesus said to them, wait in Jerusalem till I give you that promise. But what was their response? As you look at Acts, the first chapter, their response was, Lord, is this the time your kingdom is going to come? The kingdom, where did that come from? How did that plague their mind? They were looking for a kingdom, a time in which the nation of Israel would be restored, a time in which the kingdom would come about and they would be able to have their land and that the Romans would be kicked out and left to themselves to rule for themselves. As you look at the passage of Scripture, you realize there in Amos, the ninth chapter, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will be making gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted by the land I have given them, saith the Lord your God. The disciples were anticipating this kingdom. They wanted Israel restored. And they believed that Jesus was going to lead them to that. And the reality of it is, all through the New Testament, particularly through the Synoptic Gospels, when you read Matthew and Mark and Luke, what's he talking about? And the kingdom of heaven is like this, right? There in Matthew, the 13th chapter. Almost the whole chapter is, and the kingdom of heaven is like this. When you look to Mark and to uh, Luke, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom is about. And they were anticipating this physical regime coming back to Israel when all the time Jesus was talking about what? A kingdom people. Notice what he says there in the book of Daniel, the 7th chapter, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heavens will be handed over to the, servant, uh, to the saints the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Jesus was coming to institute the kingdom, a new generation of people, a people that were different, a people that were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, a people that had been redeemed, a people that had been forgiven, a people that had been made whole, a people with hope. And the disciples sort of missed that whole thing. It sort of just went right over their heads. And the kingdom, he says, is here today in the people that have assembled in his house. The people that the Holy Spirit of God has moved into and lives within. The disciples couldn't understand that. They couldn't figure it out. And they had difficulty. And they realized that they were in the midst of mourning. 
They were in a time in which they were suffering a loss. And when we talk about loss, we have in the church here a program called Grief Share, one of the best programs I know of, because it deals with those that have significant loss. And many times we only think of people that have significant loss or those that have lost loved ones. But just about anything in our life that we have placed great value on can bring about grief in our life. And I didn't realize that as a young pastor, I had a family call me up one Friday night and go, Preacher, our dog died. And I went, yeah? What do you want me to do about that? You know? I didn't have a dog. Matter of fact, I didn't like dogs. And so if another dog passed away, it really wasn't the end of the world to me, but it was the end of the world to them. And now having a dog for the last 11 years, guess what? I have pre-grief, okay? I grieve looking at him going, one of these days, you know? And when I see him sitting there on the, on the ottoman and I don't see him breathing, I'm going, uh-oh, better call Jackie. You know, because I don't know if I can handle this one. But then I didn't understand it. I didn't understand that when you move so much that you could have grief in moving. In the military, we moved every three years. You knew it. You could put it on the calendar. You know, you just marked on the calendar. Three years, you're out of here. You can make anybody mad you want to because you only have to live with them. Three years. And then you can move on. But I found out that when you leave... It leaves a hole in you. I meant you grieve over that. And particularly when you have children moving from place to place. It is difficult for them because they're always longing to be back. You know where the best place in the world is for a military person? The very best place in the whole wide world. That's where he just left. Okay, that's where he wants to go. They always did it better there. They always do the right thing. They had the best restaurants. They had the best recreation. Everything was fantastic back there. Grief, sorrow. You know, Gerald May says, Grief is neither a problem to be solved nor a problem to be overcome. It is a sacred expression of love, a sacred sorrow. We grieve this morning. It's a time for us to engage our feelings, not to stuff them down and deny them. It's a time to face our loss straight on, head on. It's a time to resist acting out. Have you ever seen anybody act out when they're in grief? If you've been to a funeral, you have. There are people who act out. Have you been in a family that acts out when death comes? Have you been to that home where the, the death has taken place and there's families huddled up in the corner over here murmuring? Have you been at that home when the U-Haul pulled in and took all the stuff because dad gave it to me and I'm going to get it? Or they go looking through the house for something that dad gave them and they can't find it because one of the other siblings has already taken it because they wanted it? It's amazing what grief does to us, does it not? It makes us act out or so we attribute it to it. Many times we get into that attack mode. Many times we find ourselves at odds with the people that we love the most. And the time that we ought to be coming together, we tear apart. It is a time to grow. 
It is a time to gather around, to huddle together, to be with the people of God during these times. Well, grief is something that Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 4, talks about. There in the fifth chapter, verse 4, he tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And there in Matthew, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, many times we've talked about death being a process and that grief is a process. The problem is it's hard to distinguish between all these steps and all these stages. And it's amazing how we go through them in so many different ways. I look at grief as being a roller coaster ride. You know a roller coaster, right? You just look straight up in the air. You just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And what happens when you get up there? It drops, okay? It drops right to the bottom. And when you're suffering and when you're in that pain and when you're in that sorrow, those steep hills are all over the place, are they not? It just seems that as soon as you accomplish one, you go up another one. But I found that death, through time, allows us to take this ride a little bit easier, to roll over them. But as he looks at it, he says that we ought to understand that God is with us, that God is our comforter, even in our pain and even in our sorrow. He is there for the brokenhearted. He is seeking our face. We need to remember the past and remain optimistic. Romans, the 15th chapter, verse 4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Oh, hope is a fantastic thing. Hope is what gets us up in the morning. Hope is what allows us to communicate the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. We need to remember the past. Hold on to it. But we also need to understand that it is that which gives us the hope for the future. We need to stay away from being the Lone Ranger. What do we mean by, you know, most of us watched the Lone Ranger when we were young. Some of you may not know the Lone Ranger and Tonto, but most of us remembering very vividly. Always riding through the mountains and through the desert where? By himself. Him and Tonto just going and doing their thing. Running upon bad guys and fixing the problem. Well, you know, when we grieve, we don't need to be the long ranger. We need to be with people. I remember when my grandmother passed away, the last thing I wanted to do was sit around and be with people. I didn't want to hear the stories. I didn't want to laugh. I wanted to sit in a corner and just deal with the grief that I had. But you know what I found? It's when that people came together. And when we would talk, and when we would share, and when we would laugh, and when we would tell the good, and when we would tell the bad, I found relief. I found comfort. I found peace. We need to go with the flow. In other words, we need to let the tears flow. 2 Corinthians 2.4 says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. When we love, we cry. Now, that's hard to tell soldiers to go cry, okay? I've done enough memorial services that it's difficult to watch this six-foot-four, 220-pound soldier, you know, just rippling with muscles, sit there and cry like a baby because his buddy gave his life. Tears are okay. 
Now, sometimes I tell soldiers, just go back to the back 40, okay? If you got to do it, go to the back 40, have a great time, let it all out, you know? But tears are natural because we love. So transition, Jesus tells the disciples, do what? He says, wait. Wait for the Spirit. Grieve during this time. Deal with the pain and the sorrow that you may have. But he tells them a second thing to do during transition. He says, transition requires us to be of one mind, to have shared values. When you look further in the book of Acts, you'll see that the early church had shared values. He says, and they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrines and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. They were together as one. And we as a church have values. You may not have seen them. We did a study here in the church in 2004 and listed our values. And one of them is worship. What is worship? A time to come together and shake hands and hug one another and uh, give commercials and talk a uh, report on what happened during the week? <laughs> David will tell you, choir, as he has probably already told you, not so. David doesn't want to have a whole lot of in-between stuff, does he? We're going to be here to do what? To worship God. To come into the presence of Almighty God. To see His face and to have His Spirit move through every pew and into every soul and into everybody. To be laid, front, uh, to lay open in front of Him and allow His Spirit to convict me of my sins. To allow his spirit to encourage my spirit. To focus totally upon him. And when you want to look at what that appears to be, is in Isaiah the 6th chapter, when Isaiah comes before God. You don't know whether that's a pleasant experience, or an awesome experience, or a painful experience. But when Isaiah comes face to face with Almighty God, the power of God moves in him in such a way that he's transformed. And that when Christ and when God asks for someone to go, Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. As wretched as I am, as sinful as I am, as weak as I am, as unequipped as I am, send me, Lord. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'll be the preacher at Klein Baptist Church if that's what you lead. Take me, Lord. Use me. That's what we do on Sunday morning. From the time the prelude begins to the time we pray together as we lead, it is a focus totally and completely upon Jesus Christ, lifting him up so that men and women will be convicted of our sin, so that we will be shown by the Holy Spirit of God what He wants us to do, so that He'll give us answers to the challenges of our lives. All this other stuff is minutia. Every song that we sing, every prayer that we give, every moment that we spend, ought to be focused on Jesus. So when you come to me and say, Lynn, i got to give this commercial. What does Lynn say? Don't think so. Well, we can't tell everybody. 
No, between 1030 and whenever the Lord leads us to the end, we're focused upon one thing. Now, does that mean we need to start at 1015? We may need to start at 1015. Okay, so we can get our commercials in. That's okay, right? That's okay. Or we could put them on the end and take away your and my dinner time. And you know me, I like to do it right on time. Okay? But worship is one of our values. Discipleship is one of our values. We want to grow in the faith and mature. Ministry, giving a cup of cool water, meeting the physical and emotional needs of the people around us, that is part of who we are. This morning we learned about one of our missionaries in Japan who may be coming here to Birmingham for medical care. What a great opportunity for us as a church to reach out and minister to their family as they deal with cancer in their lives. What a fantastic ministry. And we are a ministering church, are we not? We do that very, very well. But that's one of our values, missions. You know, we are about sending and being sent and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, you see, as you lift Jesus Christ up, men and women will be drawn unto him. People will be saved. The baptismal pools will be stirred. It is our value. The other value we have is prayer. We have a prayer room that's manned all the time. In the wee hours of the night, in the wee early mornings, they scare our poor janitor to death, okay? Because he has a weak heart, okay? If you come in this building early in the morning, watch out because you're going to scare John. And you're here praying. It is a part of who we are. Shared vision. God gives the vision. We as the people receive that vision. As Moses received the vision of liberating the people of Israel, the children of Israel out of Egypt. As Nehemiah received the vision of building the walls of Jerusalem. We share fellowship. We like to eat, don't we? We're good at eating. We are very good at it. And we love it. It's great. we got some of the best cooks in the world. It is great to sit around a meal, to eat together. Wednesday nights, if you haven't been coming to Wednesday nights and to the meals, you miss a great time to sit around the table and to get to know one another. The seniors every month have a meal. It is something that we do as a ministry. It is part of being of one mind. Notice the third thing he says. Transition requires us to pray. He says prayer, commit, devote it. They devoted themselves to prayer. Fervent prayer. When you read James, the fifth chapter, verse 16, he says the, fer- the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. We need to be fervent in our prayers, which means what? That's exciting. That's emotional. That's getting involved in our lives. We know what that is. I know you know how to do that. I know because I see the football games, right? I know that if I wear the wrong color, somebody's going to say something to me, okay? So I run around here with a flip-flop glass. I got beat up for wear, uh, using a flip-flop, flip-flop glass. They said, man, that's wimpy. Well, if I take out one of the football team's glasses, I'm in double trouble, Okay, because somebody's going to get Because we're what? We're fervent in the state of Alabama over football. 
We will do all kinds of things in this state. We are excited about it. We are enthusiastic about it. We will commit to it. We are fervent. But when we come into the house of God, I don't know. I don't know if I ought to do that. You know, somebody might get excited. Oh, man. God wants us to be involved, excited about serving him, fervent in our prayers. But he says also, he says that we ought to be intentional. We ought to have anticipation. When you prayed this week for this service, were you, uh, were you anticipating something to happen? Were you anticipating somebody to walk down one of these aisles? Were you anticipating that God was going to move in such a way that we would be transformed as an individual and we would be transformed as a church before him? To pray specifically. To pray specifically saying, Lord, be with our committee on committees as it seeks the right people that will lead us in our search for a pastor. Be with the pastor that you've already selected wherever he is in the world. Touch him right now and let him know that you're moving amongst him. Free him from whatever responsibility he may have. And may he seek your will in knowing that you have a place for him right now. Prepare him. Prepare our committee. That they will know that leadership when you give it to them. Notice he says there that it's also corporate prayer in Luke, the first chapter, verse 10. And when, the peop and when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembly worshipers were praying outside. Israel knew how to pray. And they would pray in the temple. And we need to understand corporate prayer. We pray as a group when we sit around the table. Are you leading your family to pray around the table? You know, I have a set prayer. You have a set prayer. We all have set prayers, don't we? You know, we teach our kids little set prayers. But, you know, it's a time in which we can pray as a family. Time that we set aside as a congregation. It brings people together. But, you know, it's awful hard to pray uh, as a corporate prayer when you're at conflict with one another. Can you go with me to the upper room? Go with me to the upper room where there was about 120 gathered waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Notice who's in the upper room. Over there behind the wall, or by the wall, is Peter. You remember Peter. What did he do? Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll stand. I'll be the last person standing. And what happened? He denied not once, not twice, but three times. There's Peter, the denier in the room. Look around that room and guess who you find over by the window? There's Thomas. That when they went and told Thomas, Jesus is alive, he's alive. And Thomas said what? I'm not going to believe it unless I can stick my hands, into his hand, uh, my hands into his side and into his nail print hands. And when Jesus appeared before Thomas and he just said what? He just said, Thomas? What did Thomas know? My Lord, my Savior the very voice of Jesus. But there's Thomas sitting in that room. Who goes in that room? In that upper room, there are those that have thought. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, 
Was he there because he was a true convert, or was he spying on them? Was he going to go back and tell them where, he, where we were at? Or was he truly one of us? But notice the family of Jesus is there, Mary and his brothers. Why do you think they may be upset? What did Jesus do on the cross? When Jesus hung there on the cross, he said to his brother, take care of mom, which would have been the right thing to do, right? At least the cultural thing to do. What did Jesus say? John, take care of my mother. Now, how do you think the family felt about that? Not that there would be any of that going on in anybody's family. Do you think that they may have taken offense? They could have been hurt. This was against their culture. It was the upper room. We have to be at, at unity with one another. But notice the third thing he says, be constant in all circumstances. There in 1 Thessalonians, he says, be, be joyful always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you through Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, have a clear mind. Have a clear mind and self-control. You know, when we pray, God wants us to be able to focus on him. It is so hard to pray with the TV going. It's so hard to pray with the kids running around. It's so hard to pray when the telephone's going off. It's so hard to pray and focus upon what God has for us in store. And God tells us we're to pray constantly. God has provided us great opportunity to pray. Some of you travel up and down 280 every week, every day, and you need to pray. You need to be praying constantly. This should not be a haphazard, you know, habit that you have on 280. You have to stay focused, okay, because they're coming from all directions, at all speeds and all shapes and sizes. But God has that for us. He wants us to be prepared. And so what we have this morning is Jesus saying to the disciples, Wait on the Holy Spirit. He says, be in unity. Come together. And third, he says, pray. And we as a church believe in prayer. And we're going to pray this morning as a church. Because I believe that's part of what God has for us. It is something that we can grab a hold of. And it's a place that God can move amongst us. But you know, God has prepared us to be in this place at this time. And God may have been touching you this morning. God may have been opening your eyes. He may have revealed something to you. He may have touched you in a way that nobody ever could imagine. I'm amazed at how many times I can preach with this target in mind. And the Lord has a way of doing what? Hitting this target over here. He has a way of hitting this target over here. And people will come up to me and say, well, I didn't know you were preaching that. And I'm going, I didn't. It was never in my mind or heart soul. But the Lord knows how to take his word and apply it. He knows how to move it into the very being of who we are. And so this morning, God may have been speaking to you. You may need to make a decision this morning. You may need to come and, and unite with this church. And you're going to go, why would I join a church without a preacher? You know? Let me tell you the best reason to join a church. Because God sent you. Don't join this church if God didn't send you. Don't walk down the aisle. Don't you even think about it. It's not to your advantage, and it's not to our advantage. It's not pleasing to God. But if God's led you, and God wants you here, don't sit in your seat one second. 
okay? You need to be where God wants you to be. If God has spoken to you that way, we want to give you the opportunity to respond to him. If you'll take the hands of the person to your right, to your left, let's pray together. Father, we come confessing our, our sorrow and our, our loss. And Lord, we've, we've appreciated the ministry of Brother Ron. He has done so much for each of us. Father, you've called him to a new way in his life. And we lift him up before you and ask that you continue to touch him. Father, as a church, I lift up before you the staff. Lord, you've assembled a great group of men and women that love you, that are talented, that are skilled, that are committed. Father, be with them and their families. Lord, we know that during this transition, they'll be asked to do things they may not be comfortable with. They'll be asked to visit and to share, to pray, to walk, to minister. And Lord, we thank you for their willingness and their desire to do so. Father, we lift up before you our deacons. Lord, you know their great commitment to you. And Father, they've been the prayer warriors. They've been the leaders. And Lord, I pray that you touch them. Lord, they, they mean so much to have these men, their families, serving you, praying, visiting, caring, ministering. Lord, we thank you for our members, for those that have joined because God has directed them. Lord, use these moments with them. Touch them in a special way. And Lord, as we wait on you, we wait with the knowledge that you love us. Father, we desire the filling of your spirit. We desire the wisdom that you grant. And Lord, may we be united. May we be bonded together by love, but by our commitment to you. And Lord, as we pray, as our spiritual life committee leads us in prayer all through the week, as we pray on Wednesday night, as we pray on Sunday, as we as individuals pray on the road and as we pray in our families, Father, may we be specific and may we be loving and may we be kind. Thank you for these moments today. Encourage our hearts. For this we ask and pray in your precious name. Amen.